It's episode 11. Hello. I wanted to end uh, 2019 with a big one. And to me, this is a really big interview, big get. Dave Itzkoff, who is the culture reporter for the New York Times. He used to write for Spin Magazine. He's interviewed some of the most entertaining human beings out there ever because he lives in New York and is accessible to all these fantastic humans. The Jewish Book Festival was going on, and the J hosts it, and it's really a great event. If you ever get a chance to look into it, do. There's always fantastic authors that come through. David Itzkoff was talking about his biography that came out a year or so ago called Robin. It is a definitive biography about Robin Williams, and it is so extensively written. The history that Dave has dived into to give us chronological detail about Robin Williams' life is some of the best I've ever read. And I've read a ton of biographies. In fact, that's all I really read are biographies, memoirs, and autobiographies. So uh, this is up there in one of the best ones I've ever read as far as learning the history about someone, being very entertained, and, and understanding somebody that you didn't know personally but you loved so much, which I think is is Robin Williams for me. I grew up on his movies and he's been a part of my life. Uh, It's a great tribute to Robin Williams as well. And David Itzkoff, he talks to his family members. He talks to Billy Crystal for this book. Billy Crystal and Robin Williams were really close friends and it's just so good. So if you've not picked it up yet, it is called Robin. It's available hardback, softback, and audio versions, and it's really good. So check that out after you read this interview. There's no spoiler alerts or anything in here. In fact, it's just a really great conversation about how Dave got to know Robin over time and then when he started writing this book. So enjoy it. fans of Robin Williams, which I think you describe his career and his life so in depth that I feel like you have known him since birth. It really is incredible. How did you, I mean, you're obviously the culture reporter for the New York Times, so you are, you have things in your background at Spin Magazine and and whatnot to be successful at interviewing, but how did you get so into his brain? Well, you know, I mean, I had spent time with him when he was still alive. I wrote a few pieces about him for the New York Times. And the one that was probably the most in-depth was at like a really uh, interesting time in his life and a kind of a challenging one because uh, I, I went on the road with him for a few days on what ended up being his, uh, his last stand-up tour, mm-hmm. which he called uh, Weapons of Self-Destruction. And that whole tour, it was a routine about basically like the three years in his life prior where he had relapsed into alcoholism after having been sober for like 20 years at that point and then went to rehab to get clean and then when he came out of rehab he and his wife Marsha got divorced and you know they had been together for 20 years and she was a big part of his life and career and mother of two of his kids right and then even after all that he had you know started to get the tour going and then he started having uh heart problems and had to come off the road for a while to have uh, like a valve replacement and then recuperate from that before the tour got going again and that's where I finally connected with him so all these things were like going on in his life and you know you're just in general it's it's not easy to get people to talk about any of those kinds of things that are real hardships and celebrities in in particular can be really guarded and they kind of know how they want to talk about things and what they will not talk about at right. all and I was basically prepared for him to you know, 
not want to discuss any of that. And he was really quite the opposite, that all of that was on the table. And he really, both in the routine and in our conversations, wanted to talk about, uh, I mean, especially, you know, his understanding of, you know, how he had, you know, hurt people and wronged people while he was drinking and how important it was to him that he had gotten sober. And, you know, I don't know if it's the confluence of, like, you know, people who, who get sober become more confessional. Certainly people who have had open heart surgery come out feeling kind of more vulnerable. Like I mean, Dave Letterman. Yes. <laughs> Dave Letterman. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's like they physically like crack open your body and they stop your heart beating for a little while. You're like dead on a table. Right. So people kind of, you know, come out changed people. And I think he, you know, he had gone through a lot of that. And, and just, I think, it, you know, I was the only reporter or journalist that he spoke to in that period. I think if you look at other interviews that he gave in that era, they were all of a certain tenor. Like he was very like, just like really had his heart on his sleeve and wanted people to know, like, this is what I've been through. I think it's so neat that you've chronicalized his existence because he is gone now. Yeah. And you know, what? when did you start writing this book? What year did you start? Well, the book I started working on in 2014 okay. after he died and it was probably about you know, two years of just like, you know, doing interviews and, you know, finding sources and doing like archival research and looking at, you know, materials that he had had archived at uh, Boston University. And that, you know, that was all before, like, I started actually writing. And that probably came, you know, maybe two or three years down the line after, you know, all the other uh, research. I mean, a lot of it, you know, you're writing about somebody that had, you know, passed away and under pretty tragic circumstances. Right. And, and at least in the immediate aftermath of his death, there was a lot of uncertainty as to what had actually happened. And, and so, you know, some of the people that I needed to speak to, they were still processing his right. death and still trying to figure out for themselves what had happened. And so, I, you know, I had to be patient and had to just understand that, like, these people needed time to process process it themselves before I could start kind of even expecting that they might want to discuss it. And and also, I think, you know, being aware that there were people that probably weren't going to want to talk to me at all. Sure. Well, so, I mean, how much of your day was investigating his life for that three-year span of time? You know, it could could really vary. I mean, you know, I I made a couple of trips. Uh, there, There had been some, you know, legal back and forth uh, with his estate, uh, his death kind of caused this uh, schism in his uh, in his family. It's sort of his children were were pit against his uh, his widow, his third wife, who was not you know the mother of any of the children. Right. And so I had to even wait for that to kind of settle down or get resolved before I could start talking to some of the family members. But once you know certain people indicated that they were available or open to speaking, that you know I made some trips out to. San Francisco to, you know, to meet with his son and, uh, you know, just kind of see, uh, you know, the part of San Francisco once he moved out actually to Marin County and, you know, where he had lived and gone to school and the clubs that he played in there, what was, you know, left of that, of that scene. Uh, and then, you know, again, going up to that archive at, at, in Boston and that was like a kind of week-long uh, thing. And then, you know, just finding other interviews, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you talk to a bunch of people, sometimes... Uh, you know, a couple of days go by, you don't hear from anybody, you wonder what's going on. Right. Uh, and, and some people, 
you know, uh, you know, like with Billy Crystal, when I spoke to him, I mean, I went out to L.A. and, you know, spent time with him face-to-face. That was a pretty important interview, and I obviously yes. wanted to, like, you know, be able to, like, be there in person and have that conversation with him, you know, one-on-one. Billy Crystal, the part of the book that you talk about Billy Crystal and his wife coming back from Europe. Yeah. I started just bawling oh, man, because, sorry. well, no, I mean, because I remember, I remember I got married in 2014 oh, yeah. and my husband and I are big Robin Williams fan. He that he's just such a big part, like the nineties, Aladdin, uh, Jumanji, all those yeah. movies for me and my generation were huge. And so, you know, we were getting ready to get married like a couple months later and, you know, we get the news, everybody gets the news in the world. Robin Williams is gone and it, the genie, hugging or hugging Aladdin and you know Jeannie you're free and Billy Crystal talking about how he and his wife coming to the airport and seeing that and just how devastated they were you know that their friend was so gone I mean that part of the book really showcased I think just the world grief that people were feeling Um, and Billy Crystal knew him personally so my grief is not even anywhere close to his grief but as a fan and just somebody who Loved him so much. I mean, reading through Billy's words about that was really, really neat to hear um, and totally sad. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it shows you that, I mean, as you say, everybody, I mean, on a global scale, experienced some part of that. We all, even if all we knew was just the work that he did and had seen him in some movies or enjoyed a stand-up routine of his, everybody felt some connection to him. And I think also sort of the inverse of that, the people that knew him really well uh, you know, some of them, you know, found it hard to, you know, uh, connect with him in, at near the end of his life or had been absent from him, uh, you know, in that time. And so, you know, they also, um, you know, they, they felt disconnected from him uh, at the time of his death and, and uh, you know, and they and, and, and regretted that too. And so and for, for everyone in, in ways big and small, it was a very disorienting experience. Of all the people that you interviewed, like Zach Williams, you know, have the kids um, read this book? Have they gotten to that point, or maybe contacted you to let you know about the well, book? Well, I mean, I've I've been in you know in contact with all all three of his uh, children. Not all of them are you know on the record for this book, just because they had you know varying feelings about wanting to you know share sure. their own experiences and, and memories, and they may still put that out there in their own way, or they may want to keep that for themselves, but. You know, I did a panel at South by Southwest this past spring with uh, Zelda, who is Robin's daughter and has become, uh, you know, kind of an an advocate for, uh, you know, people who have experienced, you know, in their family, uh, you know, suicide and people who have died that way. And, you know, wanting, I think, the media to be, you know, more aware and certainly more sensitive about how they talk about people and how they portray, you know, people and, and their relatives and loved ones. Sure. Uh, and that's something that has taken her, you know, and it's, it's you know, more than five years since her father's death. I think just to, for her to feel comfortable, even in that kind of a role, taking her a little while to, uh, to get there. Yeah. Well, I hope they do someday read this work when, it, when they're ready. Because yeah. I, you know, just as somebody who had no idea about so much that you put in here, I mean, it really is so detailed and interesting Mm -hmm. and I think you know I think it's interesting this is my only book of yours that I've read Uh I will read the others too because it's okay they may not hold up no 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 because I I really do think the way that you write is so good and obviously you work for the New York Times so I would hope you write well (laughs) well he's somebody that you know not only that I cared about but I think also you know, I mean, his own life sort of dictates, I think, the way that you want to 
talk about him. Obviously, there we know how it ended, and that part is sad and it's devastating, and you want people to be ready for that or feel prepared by the time you get to that part of the story. But also, there is a lot of joy in his life, oh, and there's yeah. a lot of kind of like serendipity in the way that some of his you know, most famous roles came to him and all these career breaks, not that he didn't work hard for them and have a lot of talent, uh, and it's fun to see that ascent, but also just that, like, sometimes things, opportunities fall into his lap and then he's prepared for them and he's ready for them. Well, his career definitely was sporadic. As much of people that love him and, and put him on this kind of pedestal of movie stars and comedians, I mean, he really did have some trying times Absolutely. getting TV started, getting movies started. And yeah. then, but the cool thing is, like you said, he just ebbed and flowed through the entire process. In my opinion, he never got enough acclaim in his career for movies that he did. Like One Hour Photo, yeah. that movie's incredible. Yeah. And some of his best work, and it was such a weird juxtaposition to see this comedy movie star that everybody loved and had like kindness for go into this dark space of that movie. Yeah. And I'm so bummed that he, you know, didn't get more acclaim for that role. Yeah, yeah, no, I think everybody kind of had, you know, if you paid attention to his career, everybody has, you know, a role like that in mind. Like, I, I you know, I, I, I spent a little bit of time in the book writing about this Broadway show that he did in 2010 called uh, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which was definitely not widely seen. Right. It was not uh, a stand-up show. I mean, it was a very kind of, like, darkly comedic play, and it's set, you know, in Iraq after the U.S. invasion, and his character is this weird, like, the ghost of a tiger at a zoo that was shot to death by American soldiers, <laughs> and, like, already it's, like, very existential. <laughs> right. And it was a great performance of his, and, like, had it done better in certain ways, maybe that is the trajectory that his career could have gone on. But the, you know, the show like was not a commercial success, and he didn't even get nominated for a Tony Award. And that, I know that kind of, uh, you know, wounded him. It just it was a disappointment to him. And you know, for all the successes that he experienced, certainly he had a lot of other work like that. In the mm -hmm. sense that, like, he invested himself personally. He had. Uh, hopes that it would take him in certain ways and when these things wouldn't work out uh, he definitely you know took those things to heart they they, they really hurt so him personally yeah yeah i um was re-watching um when he didn't he didn't win the critics i believe it was critics choice award for one hour photo and jack nicholson and daniel day lewis tied uh -huh. for that award <laughs> and i go and and then jack nicholson asking robin williams to come up and oh, yeah. essentially and do his like acceptance speech. Right, right. and I, you know and i love jack nicholson and I, I know they've had a good rapport but i thought you know what this is just so crap like you know, those Daniel, Day, damn Daniel Day Lewis and Jack Nicholson should have gone up there, made crappy speeches, and then allowed Robin <laughs> Williams to have his dignity to make him come up and really steal the show and yeah. and really kind of parade him around. I was mad at Jack Nicholson, <laughs> honestly. Well, it's an interesting moment that you choose because, on the one hand, you know, Robin had lost out on an Oscar to Daniel Day Lewis the year that Robin got nominated for the Fisher King and they thought he was going to win and then Daniel Day-Lewis was this dark horse at the time like not really well known in America and won for my left foot that yes. was kind of a big surprise and then uh, Robin when he did finally win his Oscar uh, for Goodwill Hunting he won as a supporting actor that was the same year that Jack Nicholson won 
uh, best actor for as good as it gets. And so they kind of got to bond a little bit in that moment as they right. were part of a, you know, sort of a, a, you know, that graduating class of actors, so to speak. And so I think Nicholson bringing him up there was, uh, that was a real uh, gesture of generosity. I, I think they had some sure. real, you know, friendship. It wasn't, it was not like a, <laughs> You know, he wasn't. It wasn't an act of, of charity. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so cut Nicholson some slack. <laughs> okay, I will. Take. <laughs> well, see, you know that because of your detailed research and investigation. <laughs> I watch that and go, I'm mad at Jack yeah. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about your career too, because obviously this book is out. People are loving it. It's a New York Times bestseller. How did you get to be a culture reporter for the New York Times? You know, it just you know. In, in kind of uh, fits and starts, I guess. I, I mean, I, I wrote for, you know, a lot of other magazines that, you know, sadly don't even exist anymore. I mean, I, I kind of came into the publishing industry, like, you know, right at the, you know, 1999, 2000, when, uh, you know, print magazines still seemed like a thing that could exist and that people wanted to pay money for. And before, you know, everybody kind of realized, like, everything is going online. And even I worked at publications that were very resistant to the web and really thought like well nobody wants to read stuff online and why should we care about that and now these magazines are not around anymore so sure. maybe they didn't make <laughs> the right choices uh but you know i worked a little bit uh for a couple of years at, at uh spin magazine and that's you know they're still kind of hanging in there so uh, cool by the way i loved spin magazine yeah. whenever it was printed yeah no i mean that was a big part <laughs> of like you know my high school and college years and certainly like you know, when I was like deeply, deeply focused on like alternative rock and just the culture around that, that was a very important part of my growing up. And so getting to work there for a few years was very, uh, you know, uh, like gratifying yeah. for me. And, you know, just certainly working in New York and having an eye on popular culture, you know, everybody wants to like, at some point in your life, every, you know, your dream is like, if I could just have you know, one byline in the New York Times, that would be really cool. Right. And like right around like 2002, I wrote a story for them about Will Ferrell. And it was at this weird juncture in his career where he was done, he had just finished Saturday Night Live and was filming the movie Elf. And it wasn't at all clear that he was going to be a star or that people really cared about him outside of SNL. And I remember him telling me in the story that like he and Adam McKay had just finished this screenplay that they were trying to sell to the studios that nobody was interested in called The Anchorman. And oh my gosh. I know, and it's like, you look back at these moments now and you're like, well, of course somebody should want that and of course it's eventually gonna become a big hit and like, you're seeing it you know, from the outside and you're like, how can these movie studios not realize what a big star Will Ferrell is and he's going to be? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just getting to, you know, see people at those junctures and you know, trying to have a little bit of foresight and, and thinking about like people who are interesting or up and coming or unexamined. That's, you know, that's what the Times was looking for at that moment. And, you know, I just found a few editors who were really supportive of my work and interested in my ideas and just little by little, uh, you know, from that byline, it still was a good, you know, six years before I was hired as a full-time reporter. Mm -hmm. Are you, um, is it odd to be on this side of the interview? Not necessarily, no. Good. I mean, it's certainly, in, you know, when I'm talking about, uh, you know, in the service of, of a book that I've written and, and certainly one that, you know, I felt like I put, uh, uh, you know, invested a lot of time and energy into and a subject that 
I care about a lot and want people to know more about, uh, I'm, I'm certainly happy to do it. Uh, and I, I mean, I kind of recognize, you know, the differences in, in you know, being a, an interviewer versus a subject and, and the power and the control that the interviewer has, <laughs> trying to be cognizant of that. Yeah. I, uh, I, this podcast is only, it's less than a year old, and I, I work for um, a rock station here in St. Louis called Casey. It's the yeah. oldest rock station in the nation. Wow. And um, I get to interview celebrities and rock stars all the time, which is super fun, and yeah. I, I'm always constantly wanting to get better at that. So any advice for people that love to interview? I think that, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, but I think you have to be... Uh, a good listener, you have to be engaged with what the other person is saying, and right. like you may have your list of questions, but you also have to be responsive to what they're saying and be ready to, you know, pick up on something that they've talked about or something that they're not saying in their answer that you want to get at. But I think the other thing to, to realize is that, in in a way, the person that you're interviewing is very much like at your mercy, even if they like have an agenda or even if they are you know, sticking to their talking points. They don't know what you're gonna ask. Sure. And even even the worst interview subject, in some way or another, they are gonna try to answer your questions. They can't necessarily give you an answer until you've asked your question. And they're gonna try, even if they're trying, you know, they're gonna try to respond to what you're saying in some way. And I feel like if you do your homework and you at least have a plan of action for how you're gonna address an interview or a conversation, then you are holding all the cards. You can tell that person exactly where to go because they're just following your lead whether they realize it or not. Thank you for that advice, actually. (laughs) Well, and I love that, that you're at my mercy. I just, I never think of it that way at all. I'm always thinking I'm at the mercy of my subject. Okay, so last question. Do you have any more books ahead of you that you're working on now? I have a couple of ideas that we are working on. Nothing that is... uh, completely solidified enough, but a couple of things that I think, if and when they pan out, are going to be uh, interesting. Okay, I'll look for them. <laughs> Dave Itzkoff, thank you so much for sitting with me in this executive lounge with snacks. <laughs> and it's my um, pleasure. And all the success to you in this book, Robin. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me over. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. As you can tell, I was kind of giddy throughout the whole thing. His interview tips were very helpful to me as well, so if there's anybody that works in the biz and needs help interviewing, I would suggest we all take heed of his great um, advice right there at the end. So thanks so much, Dave, for sitting with me and allowing me to fangirl out and also learn a little bit more about you and your glorious book about Robin Williams. Again, called Robin in bookstores, audio version available as well. It is so good. You'll love it. Perfect gift for the holidays or just any old day in 2020. Uh, so this is the end of the year. This is it. So next uh, next month for January, I'm going to try and have a couple of my babe friends come on the, the podcast. We're going to talk female stuff because I like to go girl guy, girl guy, which this month you got double dose of my husband and David's cough. So uh, double dose of dude. So next next month we'll have double dose of chicks. Maybe that's just how it goes from here on out. Who knows? But it's been a lot of fun this year. Uh, giving you the Live and Learn podcast, and it will continue in 2020. So make sure you rate, review, any feedback you have is always great. Um, I take that into account as much as I possibly can uh, while thoroughly enjoying myself as I do these because it is a personal project for me. So thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your 2019 and uh, 2020. We're coming for you. More Live and Learn next year. Peace. (laughs) 